Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. As hot, arid, and dusty as Death Valley National Park is, it might come as a surprise to learn that it has a very important fishery of sorts. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. There is a place in the National Park where there's a warm spring that is home to a rare and endangered fish, the Devil's Hole pupfish. Each year, the population of pupfish can swing widely between highs and lows. Recently, researchers completed their biannual count of Devil's Hole pupfish, and the numbers are encouraging. Devil's Hole is the only natural habitat where this critically endangered fish exists in the wild, and as the traveler's Lynn Riddick discovers from a chat with a park aquatic ecologist, the numbers are the highest in two decades. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. An attitude of gratitude can improve the way you manage your money. Enroll in Credit Score for free with Interior Federal Credit Union's digital banking and get started. Staying on top of your credit has never been easier. Join today to experience the benefits for yourself. Membership is required. Interior Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Today, we are talking all things pupfish with Kevin Wilson. He's an aquatic ecologist at Death Valley National Park and is responsible for the pupfish counting efforts that go on there. He's calling in from Pahrump, Nevada. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to The Traveler. Hi, Lynn. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I mentioned to a couple of folks that I was going to be talking to you, and their reaction was, there's fish in the desert, so I'm guessing you get that a lot. I do, and being an aquatic ecologist in Death Valley, which is the hottest place on earth, the lowest place in North America, but it's amazing the diversity of desert fishes throughout the deserts on this planet. For example, in Death Valley, we actually have five species of pupfishes. One is the Devil's Hole pupfish that we're talking about today. And there's four others that are located within Death Valley proper boundary in California. Interesting. Well, um, how about if you start by describing what a Devil's Hole pupfish is and uh, what they look like? Sure. Uh, they are a, a curious little uh, fish. The devil's hole pupfish is the smallest of pupfishes. And pupfishes are found in you know, southern Nevada, California, 
they're found in northern Mexico and also in the Middle East. So they, they have a wide distribution. But what's unique about the devil's hole pupfish, they are the smallest. The largest adults are about an inch in length. And what also is unique about the devil's hole pupfish is they lack pelvic fins. So the reason we think that is, is that uh, the devil's hole pupfish lives in very warm water at the upper physiological limits Temperature-wise, it's it's 93 degrees all the time in Devil's Hole. 93 degrees from the surface all the way to the bottom? Right. Well, it's interesting that Devil's Hole is a water-filled cave. The water surface itself is about 50 feet below the land surface. So we have to kind of hike down into Devil's Hole to conduct our research. Divers have been down to 436 feet and did not see a bottom. So... A famous cave diver in the 80s and 90s thought that Devil's Hole was probably the deepest cave in North America, but it hasn't been fully explored yet. Well, I want to ask some more questions about Devil's Hole, but um, I was curious, going back to the pupfish there, are they related to guppies or minnows in any way? You know, our uh, aquarium no. fish that we know. Right. So they're in the Sempridodont family, which is uh, the, the killifishes. So they're kind of similar to those. So slightly different. But people do think of when you talk about a small fish, it's a guppy or a little minnow, but it's a slightly different family. And what's their behavior like? Do they kind of hover in the same place? Do they school? Well, it's interesting. It's such a unique environment. There's, you know, practically there isn't any current. There's slight movement at deeper, but it's really you can't perceive it when you're diving in Devil's Hole. So they actually will swim around, they're active. Their name pupfish comes from their puppy-like behavior. You know, the males will chase the females and they're really curious when we're, we're diving in Devil's Hole, fish will come swim up to you and look at you and they'll swim away. So they're a really curious fish. What kind of things do they eat? Well, uh, the technical term is they're omnivorous, so they eat anything that they come across. And so Devil's Hole has a, a number of invertebrates. They have, we have a couple of types of beetles. We have a snail, a spring snail. We have a, a side-swimming shrimp or an amphipod. There's um, a fly larvae or a dipterin larvae. So, and we also have about 80 species of algae, two dominant types. But uh, what's interesting, when we look at their guts, the material in their guts, a lot of the guts are filled with calcium carbonate. That is a, a, a crystalline form that's found in the water. It precipitates out of, uh, of the water because it's super saturated in calcium carbonate because it's in a limestone type of rock. So they're really not being particular eating one or two food items. They kind of go around, eat off the surface, off the bottom, off of algae and whatnot. What's their lifespan? It's a good question. And, and it's kind of take a step back. They live about eight to 14 months in the wild. So they have to grow up in a hurry to be able to reproduce fish for the, the next year. So they're very short lived. So I wanted to ask you when pupfish were put on the endangered species list and are we talking about all the different pupfish in the park there? No. So the Devil's Hole pupfish was a fish 
in a group of fishes that were listed in 1967 under the Endangered Species Preservation Act of 1966. And so there were other desert fishes that were included because they live in typically small habitats and are not widely distributed. And then the Devil's Hole pupfish were grandfathered into the Endangered Species Act of 1973, as we know it today. So it was a, a group of fishes. And in the surrounding Ash Meadows National Wildlife Refuge, there is another listed species, critically or endangered species in nearby. In the park, there are two that are listed by uh, the California um, listed species, but not federally listed. So the Devil's Hole Puffish is the only federally listed species in Death Valley National Park. Any other federal protections for the Devil's Hole Pupfish? The, you know, the ecosystem actually has a protection, which is unique in that, uh, as I mentioned, Devil's Hole is a water-filled cave. So I, I like to talk about when you're looking down at Devil's Hole, it's a window into the groundwater or the aquifer. So if you were to drill a well out at the top where we park our vehicles, where you would hit water is where we see Devil's Hole. So in the late 60s and early 1970s, there was local water development by a private landowner, the Caperts, that put a well right on the boundary of Death Valley National Monument, when it was a monument, not a park. And so when they turned on that well, kind of started sucking on the straw, the water level in Devil's Hole declined. And with that, the population declined. And so eventually there were injunctions put in place on reducing pumping, and then finally, a Supreme Court decision, it was a unanimous decision, all nine Supreme Court um, members voted in favor of a federal water right to protect Devil's Hole and the habitat. Because when that water was lowered, it exposed in a very important um, shelf, we call the shallow shelf, where they have the highest spawning success in most of their forage or food is on this shelf. So, there's actually a Supreme Court water right for Devil's Hole, and that regulates water use in the local Armagosa Valley. So it can be very politically charged when it comes down to water. So the water source is the underground aquifer? That's correct. It's called the lower carbonate aquifer, and water comes from over 100 miles away from uh, Mount Charleston, of the Nevada test site and over by uh, Creech military base. So this water's coming from a long distance. And when it reaches Devil's Hole, it, it's considered a couple of thousand years old, if not older. So what does Devil's Hole look like from the surface? How, how long, how wide? Right, that's a great question because Devil's Hole is considered the smallest known habitat on earth for a vertebrate species. So that being the Devil's Hole pupfish, it's a vertebrate and it's the only vertebrate in Devil's Hole because the opening is only about 10 feet wide by 60 feet in length. And they typically, we, we see a majority of the fish in the top 30 feet because that's where light reaches and there's food and habitat for them to use. Though we'll see several down deep at say 80 feet or so. And I wanted to clarify for our listeners, is Ash Meadows National Wildlife Refuge considered part of Death Valley National Park, 
um, but across the border in uh, Nevada. Right. So Devil's Hole is located in Nevada and it's adjacent to Ash Meadows National Wildlife Refuge. And the refuge is managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So it's part of the, the refuges system across the United States. So we're neighbors. So what's unique about Devil's Hole and why are pupfish able to survive there and nowhere else? Right, so Devil's Hole is, is home to the only wild population of the Devil's Hole pupfish. And the habitat is unique in that, like I mentioned earlier, it's always 93 degrees Fahrenheit around that temperature. So it's high temperature. It also has very low dissolved oxygen. I'll put a number out, it's about 2.5 milligrams per liter. In comparison, what that means is that other spring systems nearby, dissolved oxygen is about eight or nine or 10 milligrams per liter. So it's quite low for a fish to survive in, in other invertebrates. And it's also light limited, so it becomes food limited in the winter. So sunlight only reaches the shallow shelf for a maximum of about four and a half hours in the middle of summer. And then it doesn't receive any direct sunlight throughout late fall, winter, and early spring. So that reduces the amount of algae that grows, which is part of that base of the food web. So less algae, typically we have fewer invertebrates or fewer food items for the pupfish and the other invertebrates that live in Devil's Hole. Let's talk about the counting that goes on there. Um, who's involved in this effort? Yeah, that's, that's another good question. So Devil's Hole is managed by three different agencies. The first being the National Park Service because we own, the public owns the land, but we oversee the 40 acres that makes up Devil's Hole in the surrounding landscape. It's also managed by the Fish and Wildlife Service because they oversee the Endangered Species Act. Devil's Hole pupfish is critically endangered. And then also the Nevada Department of Wildlife is part of the managing agencies as they oversee endangered species in the state of Nevada. Describe the setup there for the counting process. From the pictures I've seen, it looks like there's a metal bridge or a landing contraption on a shallow underwater rock ledge. Uh, what's the equipment involved and uh, does it stay there permanently? It, it doesn't. So we have developed a, a platform that we can deploy in four different pieces and then remove when we're done doing research, either by doing our visual scuba and surface counts or conducting other types of research. So. It is removable, and that's important because we don't want people to come visit Devil's Hole and go, well, what? There's a big bridge over most of the ecosystem. So when we go specifically to do our, our counts, we call them visual surveys because we use both scuba and surface counters, and we deploy this platform. There are high-strength aluminum bars that go from side to side and then pieces of walkway that go down. And then we have a ladder that we extend down in the water. And like you said, this is deployed over a shallow rock shelf. So what happened in the past about 60,000 years ago, Devil's Hole was a full cave, that ceiling collapsed and these big boulders got stuck between the two walls. And so how we do the counts is that we use two teams of two, scuba divers, so we have a biologist or a science counter, and then a safety diver. Because 
we go down to 110 feet and we do enter a true cave portion. So it's a technical dive that, that we do. And we have to have special cave dive training in order to do these dives. So to get back to account, so we have these two teams of two individuals, they go in at the same time and there's a leading team and then a second team. And we descend to about 110 feet or so. The first team starts their count as they go to the surface or ascend. And they follow the same pattern basically that we've been doing for 50 years. So we've been counting the devil's hole pupfish for 50 years. So while these two teams of scuba divers are counting fish independently, one team and then a second team, we have three people on the over the shallow shelf that's um, their knees on the, on the platform that count fish on the shelf. So we use the number that we get from the surface counters and then the numbers that we get from our dive teams. And so typically we take the first counter, counter scuba numbers and then our surface number that we take three counts and then take a mean of that. And that comes up with our number. So let me make sure I understand this. So the four divers that are down in the water, is one team counting the fish once and then the second team coming behind them to do a, a second count of the same fish? Yes, that's exactly right. And the reason why we do that is because there are times when we have to use the second counter's number because the first diver might experience problems during the dive, such as buoyancy control, a foggy mask. And we've had that happen where a diver had issues clearing their foggy mask. And so that counter's number was discarded and we used the backup, the second counter's number. And over the years, like I said, we've been doing this for 50 years. It's, it's amazing how accurate and precise the numbers are between the two divers. Sometimes they're spread out, but they can be within a few fish which is actually amazing that you're you know, using scuba and counting the entire population. And the reason we use this type of visual survey is that we cannot use traditional fish counts or censuses like mark recapture. We can't fin clip the devil's hole pupfish because the mortality rates would be too high. So, it's unique, but it's we are very comfortable in our numbers and a reflection of the true population size. Yeah, I was wondering how difficult it was to count the fish because, you know, do they have a tendency to swim away uh, so that you're not sure whether you've counted it or not? Yeah, so that that's, that's a question we get a lot. How do you know if you miss fish or you double count? And so we probably, we do miss fish. We know we do, and we've probably count others a couple of times, but the way we do it, and we do it for two days, so we have four different dives, eight different counts. Uh, we've manipulated, we put a net on this shallow shelf to block fish from going on and off, but that was less accurate than not using a net. So we have experimented with that. And, and we do show that our counts, our visual surveys are a good reflection of of the population size. It's, I always like to tell a story. We had a new fish biologist start uh, replacing a, a fish and wildlife service person. And 
He's first day, it's the first counts. And he goes, how can you count fish in scuba and the surface? Then after the first day, you know, I, he says, Kevin, I can't believe it, but I think this is really good. So it's, it's, it's a fun story to tell. <laughs> now for our claustrophobic uh, listeners, you have to tell me when you're at the maximum depth of 110 feet, how wide is the cavern at that space? Uh, yes, yeah, so there are places where you can touch the two sidewalls, so it's uh-huh. very narrow <laughs> widthwise, but lengthwise it's quite open. And so, if you do Google some of the underwater photos of Devil's Hole, you get a better perspective. But there is, and you know, for me, as I'm getting older and diving that deep, it's you know the cave monsters kind of speak to you. Okay, what are you doing down here in this dark place? <laughs> <laughs> sure, it's pretty scary. Um, any problem with tanks or uh, equipment getting uh, snagged on the rocks? It's They're actually pretty smooth. The water is gen clear, so the visibility is incredible. So for the divers that listen to this, they'll be very envious because it's it's a wonderful, slow, methodical dive in clear, warm water. <laughs> Sounds great. Absolutely. Uh, you wear wetsuits though, right? Oh, uh, people will wear their cold skin. So it's just a protective layer. It's very thin. It's not to protect from the cold. Our dives last maybe a maximum of 45 minutes to an hour. So they're not really long dives. And again, we go down to 110 feet and we ascend or turn around to go to the surface right away. So we spend a lot of time at shallower depths, which helps with our decompression issues and nitrogen bubbles and whatnot. I'm Lynn Riddick, and I'll be back with Kevin Wilson and the pupfish population at Death Valley after this message. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, or development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. 
the Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. I'm back now with Death Valley aquatic ecologist, Kevin Wilson. Do you think there are pupfish deeper than where you're able to observe? We have seen fish down at about 100 feet, 95, but it was an individual. There's another part of Devil's Hole that's called Brown's Room, and it's about 85 feet. You have to squeeze through this narrow opening, and then you can go up to the surface, and there's a big open cave. You can take your gear off and walk around. And one time on a dive, there was a lost adult pupfish in Brown's Room. So we tried to catch it because the survivability in Brown's Room for the fish was near zero. <laughs> so... But they do, they are curious and they will go deeper. But once it becomes a true dark cave at about 85 feet, fish will probably most likely turn around or do turn around. So besides counting, what other kinds of things do you measure? Well, the Aquatics Devil's Hole program for Death Valley National Park was started fully in 2008. And it was a base increase from the National Park Service and a line item in Congress that started the Devil's Hole Aquatics program because the population numbers were declining for unknown reasons. So I was actually just finishing up my PhD at the University of Toronto. A position came open as aquatic ecologist to start developing a monitoring program for Devil's Hole to try to get to or try to answer why do we have such low numbers. So we study the types of food that are there, how much, the different water quality parameters, nutrients. So it's a whole suite of things that we measure to try to answer basic questions of, of why the population is declining, what types of food items are there or not there. After you compile the data um, and analyze it, uh, where else does it go? Who else sees the, the findings? We, we do publish, so we also do applied research, and we work with different academic institutions that we ask specific questions. So one project that we are one year into, we call the Data Synthesis Project. What this project does, it takes all of this information, environmental information, water information, pupfish numbers, and in will help us try to answer specific questions of why we've seen a decline. We've been to a low of 35 fish in the spring of 2013. Then this spring and fall, our counts have been the highest in 22 and 21 years, respectively. So what were, the, what were the counts for uh, 2022? So, right. So our 2022 counts, the spring count was 175. So that was the highest spring count since the year 2000. And then our fall count was 263, the highest in 21 years. So it's quite a difference. And so we've been to a low of 35 observable fish. So it's quite a range. We thought extinction was imminent. And so we are at a much better place now. We've developed a strategic plan 
that helps managers make efficient decisions. So I, I think we're going in, in the right direction. We're seeing higher numbers where we're getting projects funded to help us answer the million dollar question, why are we seeing such population swings? We are in a steady state for a while. So I'm happy of where we are as a team. Yeah, I was wondering, you know, what you thought might be bringing the population back and whether it was just a fluke or something like that. Yeah, that's a great question. This devilish little puppish always has me scratching my head. We always ask the question, why? And it's not a smoking gun. There's a synergistic thing going on here with multiple factors playing into the population trends and dynamics of the pupfish. So we know that climate change, the atmospheric temperatures increasing is influencing peak water maximum temperatures when the sun hits the shelf. That's reducing the optimum spawning period. We've seen an introduction, natural colonization of a predaceous little diving beetle. And we have evidence that they can prey on pupfish eggs or little fish. So what are, what are those impacts? And we have a paper coming out on that. And again, it's the, the community dynamics, getting a better handle on what are invertebrate numbers and biomass and our algae biomass tells us about how the ecosystem has changed over the last 10, 12 years. So the count this fall must have been exciting to you though. It was very exciting. Um, in 2013, when we had 35 fish, I think I turned gray overnight. <laughs> now, you know, with the 263, it was a very exciting moment for myself. I did my master's back in 99 to 2001 on Devil's Hole, doing the first uh, really ecological study of the ecosystem with my mentor, Dean Lynn. And so it's been a big part of my life. My first visit to Devil's Hole was in 1975 when I was tagging along with my mother's geology field class. And so I remember looking down, laying on this observation deck as a young child. And here I am, you know, many, many decades later, still wondering about Devil's Hole and what makes it click. It's been a fun experience. Any worries that the divers will introduce any harmful things into the water there or that the stirring up of the water um, by diving activity would affect the fish? That, that is a question that we've asked for, for, for a long time. So what we've been doing for a decade now is we have dedicated dive gear that is only used in Devil's Hole. So the regulators, the buoyancy compensator, the tanks we use, the masks we use, the computers we use, they're all dedicated and only used in Devil's Hole. So we reduce that chance of introducing an alien species. And there are several in local nearby ash meadow systems. And so with the disturbance, yes, we, we do. There's, we call it the new style layer. So it's this material that collects on the water surface, algae and debris, calcium carbonate. And when we enter, we do cause that material to fall out, you know, go into the water column. So it does disturb the ecosystem. That's a million dollar question. I think we do a right balance. We only go in twice a year. So four days a year, we're out on site twice a week to observe the fish. So we observe pre-dives and post-dives. Um, we do not see 
mortalities that frequently after dives. So that's, that's a positive. So there is some impact. I mean, we, we, we acknowledge that, but how negative, like I said, the fish will swim up to you and kind of look at you and then swim away. So it's, we need the information and we have to be cognizant of our impacts to the ecosystem. And I guess when you say mortalities, you mean mortalities of fish and not divers. <laughs> yeah. Yes, thank, thank goodness. Yeah, so natural mortalities of devil's hole pufferfish. I should have been more clear about that one. <laughs> <laughs> but there have been divers that have disappeared in devil's hole. Some young teenagers, and I believe it was 1965, came out to dive in devil's hole. They're from Las Vegas area and uh, were caught by a ranger, a park ranger that just happened to be visiting that day. And he said, you can't be here, please leave. So they came back at night. And at night, Devil's Hole becomes a true cave as soon as you enter the water. And they didn't have the training. Three divers went in, two surfaced. The most experienced diver put on another tank to look for his lost buddy, and that person didn't surface. So there's still two missing bodies and dive gear in Devil's Hole. Oh, that's horrible. What year was that? 1965. It was terrible. They they brought out the military special divers. They brought out cave divers from Florida. They had a helicopter on site, an ambulance on site. Um, they did over 40 dives and all they found was um, a dead or not functioning dive light. And then a dive card so you could do your measure your dives and how often you could dive. Yeah, and I, I wanted to reiterate that um, what you said, the Devil's Hole area is restricted to the public, yet yes. notwithstanding what happened in the 60s that you just described, but you've had vandals who've jumped the fence recently and sloshed around on the shallow water shelf. Is vandalism a continuous worry for you? You know, it really is, and it's unfortunate. We do have security cameras on site, both for vandals that might enter. And we used that videography to find those trespassers in 2016. You know, they went for a swim and walked on the shallow shelf. You know, they threw up down near the water, they left their boxers. And uh, so one of them was sentenced to a year and a day in prison because he had prior felons and, or prior felony and was seen with a, um, a weapon, a shotgun. Um, and like I said earlier, with the water rights of Devil's Hole regulating water use in the local Armagosa Valley and elsewhere, there's, you know, this bumper sticker, these two bumper stickers that came out in the late 60s, early 70s. One is kill the pupfish. The other one is save the pupfish. So that sentiment is still present in today's era. So there are people that if you can't eat them, why should we care about them? And it's unfortunate. So we do have barbed wire fence and it's restricted, but we have to protect against people doing dumb things and protecting a critically endangered listed species. We have something similar where I live in San Antonio, Texas. We're, uh, our water source is the underground Edwards Aquifer, and there's a blind salamander that will perish if the water level drops too low in the aquifer. 
Have you heard about that situation, or I guess it's sort of similar to what you're talking about, where there's a huge demand on water by a community, a large community, especially in California and Nevada, uh, water there is really at a, at a uh, premium. So you've got the balance between what people need and, and uh, what wildlife needs, what species need to survive. Right. It, it is, you know, I can take off my NPS hat and put on my civilian society hat. It's a, it's a decision society needs to make. What are the things we're saving? It's a balance of water use. Here, you know, desert aquatic ecosystems are threatened around the world because of the demand on water. People moving into these favorable habitats, solar renewable energy, mining, lithium mining, gold mining is picking up in the area. So there are a lot of needs for increased water use. So that's why the state, Nevada state engineer regulates water use in the state of Nevada and has put down several orders to protect Devil's Hole in the water rights that the Supreme Court found in favor of in 1976. So it's a tough one and it's only gonna get worse in the future. Does the water level in Devil's Hole stay consistent? This is a really another unique feature of Devil's Hole is that um, I like to call it the Devil's Hole tidal, intertidal zone, but Devil's Hole actually follows the lunar tidal cycle and that it will have two peaks in two troughs in about a 24 hour period. And what that suggests is that Devil's Hole again is very deep. Divers have been to 436 feet and then see a bottom and it's a, a large volume of water. So the moon can influence that up and down movement of the water level on a daily basis. That's also why certain earthquakes around the rim of fire, typically Mexico, Chile, Alaska, can cause large waves, they're earthquake-induced waves, they're called seshes, uh, it's a technical term, but these huge I mean, waves can get six, eight feet and slosh devil's hole. It can remove all of the material off of the shallow shelf. So it's a very dynamic system. Is that what happened prior to the count this year, an earthquake? Exactly what happened. We had a, a pretty good earthquake. And so, you know, this type of disturbance, but, you know, has short-term negative impacts, but long-term positive ones. And that probably the eggs that were laid over the last few days didn't hatch. Maybe little fish that couldn't burrow quickly enough or swim that well, they could have perished. But it kind of resets the ecosystem. So if there's a long period of time of algal growth and death and organic material falling in, that can start playing problems for the ecosystem and that, that decomposition of material can create conditions that are not good for egg laying for the pupfish. Where was the earthquake? That earthquake was in Colima, Mexico. So Death Valley National Park has had a couple of significant flood events, one this year and one in 2015. And I wondered if flooding was a worry regarding Devil's Hole, that area, and if so, um, do you think a flood event might affect the pupfish? Yeah, we, we had you know the 2015 flood that affected Death Valley National Park did flood Devil's Hole, and again, 
there's the, the short-term negative impacts, but long-term positive. The short-term negative impacts from a flood is that, again, it, it will smother and kill eggs, uh, invertebrates, and little fish that can't swim that well. But Devil's Hole is a very energy-poor system, so these flood events can bring in a large amount of nutrients that can create a very productive ecosystem. And, and so this past summer, Death Valley actually had three or four major floods in a short period of time. And at one point, there was no way in or out on a paved road from, to the visitor center or headquarters. So it was a pretty amazing summer for flooding in Death Valley, but Devil's Hole didn't receive the same rains and did not flood. So can your research there be applied to other fragile ecosystems with similar species? And if so, what and where? I've been saying a lot during our, 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 our talk today, our discussion about Devil's Hole is how unique it is. However, I like to think of Devil's Hole as a, a canary in the coal mine or a bellwether. And the reason being is that it's already naturally warm, 93 degrees. So if we can learn about the animals and plants and algae that can live in this environment under increasing atmospheric temperatures due to climate change, we can apply what we learn at Devil's Hole to other systems that in the future might get up to 93 because of climate change. And that would be across all types of desert aquatic eco ecosystems on, on Earth. And so uh, researchers have also shown that the devil's hole pupfish, and I'm not an expert in this physiology, but um, they switch their energy pathway to an ethanol or an alcohol pathway, which is anaerobic or without oxygen. So it's a really uh, perplexing thing. So they can shut down an aerobic pathway and use ethanol for energy for short periods of time. So with new technologies that are developed in the future, we'll have better tools to see how this ecosystem has evolved over time. We'll have a lot of information over time that can be used to help answer questions for other ecosystems that might become similar to Devil's Hole in the future. Do you guys have a relationship with the Submerged Resources Center of the Park Service? Yeah, we've worked closely with, with Brett and Dave Conlin and others there. They've, they've been on site. And some of the photos you'll see were, were taken by Brett and they did underwater videography and, and photos for us to, to use in talks to provide for media outlets and social media and whatnot. And, you know, you have a really interesting position there. And I was wondering if any other national parks had comparable positions. There are few and far between. I, I am fortunate that I'm able to do science. And, you know, there's always administrative and supervisory tasks that I have. But to be able to do science, it's a great job for me. And it's a great job for people that like to do what I like to do. And there are others in the Park Service that have you know, there's the kelp forest monitoring program that's been in place since the 60s, I believe, out of Channel Islands. There's a large research up at Crater Lake. 
the Biscayne work that they're doing. So a lot of the water parks have dive programs. And so there are similar program manager positions. To summarize, in 2013, 35 pupfish were counted. In 2016, 115. In 2017, 170. And in 2022, 263 pupfish. So what's the highest number ever recorded there? The highest number in uh, 50 years is 553 fish. And as a, a diver and a pupfish counter, I couldn't imagine seeing that many devil's hole pupfish. It would just be amazing. So your next pupfish count will be in the spring of 2023? That is correct. So yeah, I can back then to give you an update. Okay, we'll be curious to hear that. Kevin Wilson, we applaud the efforts of you and the many others to protect a tiny fish. And we wish you success in your work to not only keep an eye on the population, but to help restore it. So thank you for your time today. Thank you, Lynn. It takes a team and I'm just one person of, of a, a lot of individuals that contribute to the recovery efforts of Devil's Hole. And thank you for your support. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. To ensure that our weekly podcasts continue to find you, we hope you'll make a donation to National Parks Traveler. During the months of November and December, we hold the largest fundraiser of the year, and the revenues go to pay the bills as we cover national parks and protected areas. Keep an eye on the Traveler's website, nationalparkstraveler.org, for special offers in the weeks to come. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio Series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.